This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has had so much to gain and has such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back come on board to the And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now they speak very high position, yeah. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 171. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, as promised, we are accelerating the cycle of uh, Grotto of Truth Q&As at the end yeah. of the year here. Mm-hmm. We're going to make up make up for some lost time. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think today we actually are turning the corner into getting into questions from 2022. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So we are. We're going to see our first question for 2022. If, you know, assuming we make it five questions into this one, we won't get a question <laughs> for 2022. <laughs> Just in time for 2024. But yeah, we're this, you know, yeah. we're doing this because we, uh, you know, as we said before, we don't do like deep like research for the Q and A episodes necessarily, unless like a question like really strikes us and we want to like you know go really deep into it, which is uh, sometimes the case. But we we definitely do have like a uh, very interesting, I think, like Palestine episode like coming, uh, a sort of historical look at uh, some of the issues that we're seeing uh, mm-hmm. come into very sharp focus uh, in on the world stage right now. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for now, we have uh, some long delay listener questions. Yes, um, we do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so far we've been talking about the current situation at the top of episodes and in Q&As but I think uh I think like I said off the you know the first time we discussed this that you know I don't know the deep dive is really where I feel like our uh our efforts could be best put to use and so I think we got something uh you know a multi-part series coming up that yeah you know of some some deep history we're going to we're going back to well, not the beginning, but we're going back a Yeah, long we're not ways. going back to like the, you know, Roman Empire. Uh but you no. know, you know, we might talk about like the Umayyads. I don't know. Like who knows? But uh it's a little bit, but about. you know, we're definitely gonna go back uh you know, back a ways. You know, we're not just gonna uh start in, you know, uh, the mid twentieth century or anything. We're gonna we're gonna go back. because uh, I think that there's definitely some uh conceptions that uh you know, certain people's best friends um, who they promoted aggressively uh, and helped build audiences um, have been uh, perpetuating like it wasn't even a country until the Jews came. It was a people. It was a country without people and people without a country. 
And I think, you exactly. know, that we need to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think it, yeah. I think that our, uh, our, uh, our strengths in the podcast domain would be well applied to uh, refuting some of those ideas and kind of uh, giving a, you know, fuller uh, and deeper picture of uh, what's happened in Palestine over uh, the last century plus uh, in the, the long 19th century, as it were. Yes. At the risk of sounding too ambitious, I think applying a bit of a uh, Gustavus Myers lens to the whole thing might uh, be appropriate. Yeah, I think of, it's okay know, to tracing. be ambitious. Like, what's gonna, what you know, I what's the so. worst that could happen? Our podcast is over ambitious. Like, you know, we could. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I just bet you know, and and I'll do deference to the right, uh, right. I say, yes, the course. goat yeah, yeah. Uh, Gustavus mm-hmm. Myers. Um, that you know, in terms of a a multi century chronicle of like fraud, abuse, usury, like you know well this not is, like i don't mean like that but you know what i mean like <laughs> yes you know, right justices like, um uh yeah. forced expulsion land theft like gross land theft like you know a people betrayed uh etc like you yes. know i think and i think this conflict is so bound up in people's ideas of uh and i mean i don't want to say conflict at this point uh this uh, current genocide that we're seeing unfolding uh perpetrated against palestinians by the state of israel um is you know, so the discourse around it is so bound up in people's perceptions of uh, history and in a historical narrative. So I think that uh, delving into a historical narrative uh, would be a uh, valuable thing to do. And I think that a lot of people like in this fear who, you know, are uh, uh, share our sympathies in terms of uh, their perspective on, on this, uh, you know, uh, they I think that this is, you know, going into the, the past a little bit uh, would be something that maybe um is less available to to people uh so you know in podcast yeah, form yeah yeah I think you know people... you can definitely find like a million like uh, iterations of norman finkelstein's like you know rundown on the matter which is you know totally good and valuable uh but i think you know we're trying to see how can we contribute using uh you know uh, our well, exactly. strengths I in mean, this domain yeah i i think people like that uh have like played a very valuable role in kind of you know getting a lot of facts out and yeah. providing like valuable counter narratives but that said i think as this thing keeps grinding on uh with all of its its horror um i think that there's also space because i think you know people that are already watching like norman finkelstein videos you know don't necessarily don't necessarily need to hear you know hundreds of years of history to sort I mean, of like you don't need to know anything fucked up. to realize this is fucked yes, up at this point exactly yeah, sorry to exactly. cut you off but yeah you, no, know, no, you no, don't no, really need to know anything you can just be presented with like the bare facts of the of the matter but i still think that you know there is uh oh it's certainly something that's that's worthwhile and important um, yeah and, and i think in the spirit of, the, of you know, uh you know engaging in the info war i think yes that, diffusing uh, the justifications like the nonsense justifications and rationalizations for this atrocity not that any of them like i mean of course it's just like you know like no one's going to be persuaded but because i feel like well you know i'm not going to say that maybe some there may be some who are just so thoroughly psyoped because really this is like a psyop on an incredible scale uh with with very very like a very nuanced and very uh complex and highly like uh, articulated psyop with you know not perpetrated by any 
uh, singular uh, force per se, uh, but different ones, uh, you know, uh, over the course of time, uh, both like in cooperation with each other and tension with each other at times. Um, mm. So, well, yeah, it, well it's like, almost like I feel like it almost rises to the level of an on top because it's oh, like, yeah. so <laughs> it deeply in, intertwined into like from the American perspective, particularly of um, like our relationship to Israel, this uh, yes. entity and like what it represents for us and like our whole story about like why they're there, what they represent, et cetera, is like so goes back so deep. And, yeah. you know, the Zionist the, the project is an on top. It's yeah. in a way like an archetypal on top. Um, it be, yes, definitely. Um, no, hundred percent. It's so that's, something that you know. is, yeah, it has the characteristics of being, yeah. Like when we've like, I think that this term, like with on top that we threw out, like in our first episode is like something that is somewhat nebulously defined. You know, I think like the way that I sometimes, uh, like tend to use it is something that, uh, moves from the sort of epistemological domain of the psyop you know or the psychological domain slash epistemological domain into like the uh, ontology right from what things uh we know or what things we believe to what things exist and what things are and yeah. certainly one can see very vividly how that applies to what we're seeing right now and certainly what uh you know we'll see over um the course of uh of the long 19th century um definitely definitely i i feel like when i invoke it i tend to think in a, in a more like small-brained way it's just like the on top is on a more macro level whereas the uh psyops are more acute you know, like historically yeah. and like they're more acute directed events to kind of uh you know, basically push a to achieve a specific effect at a specific time, and on tops are like underlying assumptions that like take root in a culture and can last for like centuries. Basically, yeah, I think that's and, true. Like going back to like you know Protestant Zionist like writings from like the 17th century, and the fact that like you know one of the things that I found most interesting in my research for that episode, which I'm very excited to do, uh, subsequent to this one, um, is like how nowadays we think of uh, Zionism as just deeply baked into Protestant Christianity, just like part of its DNA. When in fact, that's not actually true. And this issue has been like deeply contested as recently as like 1948. Um, and even, you know, after that, uh, the like this whole sort of consensus has formed now where like american evangelicals are just like fanatically devoted to israel uh that hasn't always been yeah that wasn't always the case yeah Yeah. and even uh, the even like i i I was reading something that referenced the other day but i i've seen this evidenced elsewhere that like in the earlier days uh even a lot of like conservatives uh tended to be sometimes a little bit more cool to Israel than like liberals. And then over time, not that liberals aren't like completely down with Israel, but like it, the enthusiasm thing sort of flipped to being more on the right. Uh, maybe I'd say probably around the seventies and eighties, uh, that kind of era, which is also the rise of sense. like the yeah. newer evangelical, like Pat Robertson, moral majority, like mm-hmm. really kind of bloodthirsty, like Iran Contra evangelical, kind yeah. of era which makes sense because they were all like literally in some cases collaborating on like iran contra shit to like fund death squad like train death squads in antigua remember that mm-hmm. contra seven that was a uh that was an idf collab um with uh 
God, I forget if the Moonies were connected to that. And then, you know, uh, this this the great ecumenical anti-communist alliance uh, that Bill Casey helped like coalesce, you know, in the 1980s. I think you see a shift there. But yeah, before that, I mean, it's interesting to get into the history of that of like, well, like, yeah, why uh, were they not so sold on Israel and what what changed them, you know? To yeah. Be, and now, like the way they see things is that like this is like a fundamental idea in our religion that this is part of like this sort of view of how you have the end times. Right. But it's interesting, like how, this, that's the, you know, uh, one dimension of, I think, a very complex on top. But it certainly is uh, a archetypal on top in that now there's this like very widespread almost total uh conviction that of course you know this is uh what we need to do in order to realize this prophecy like this is what our religion teaches among american evangelicals but prior to that like the of course I mean, it, it makes sense when you think about it, like, you know, but I think it's something that people don't consider uh, too often. And in a way, uh, there's been a concerted effort to represent this as having always been the case, that there was never any disagreement over how to interpret these texts and how to understand uh, the relationship between Israel and uh, the Christian uh, eschatology and things like that. Um, but yeah. so, yeah, this... Uh, that's that's just one interesting dimension of uh, all of this, um, in addition to how the United States and Great Britain and the Ottoman Empire in its twilight years um, were uh, involved in this region and invested in uh, its demography and in its uh, identity as uh, a sort of a, a national identity, its religious identity in over the course of that time. Uh, which you know, definitely excited to get into because I think there's a lot there. Uh, that's, no, definitely that's fascinating. Let's yeah. not forget our our BCCI big dog Clark Clifford because it wasn't his one of his proudest achievements was like helping to negotiate the creation of Israel in the Truman administration or something. Wow, thank you. Remember that? Yeah, mm. yeah. So yeah, there's a lot to chew on. Um, so yeah, I think uh, next episode. Um, is prob next one that probably is going to come out uh is going to be dealing with that yeah so uh stay tuned but today we have questions from the grotto of truth discord mm -hmm. that we have to get to should we kick it off sure all right i'll read the first one this is okay. from jolly and rancher on december 29th 2021 they ask what are your opinions on eric hoffer the quote longshoreman philosopher Okay. Um, I really, I'm. I don't really know too much about this guy. Like, I'm vaguely aware of the book that he wrote, um, where he like said, like, you know, all mass movements are the same. The true believer. Yeah. Thoughts on the nature of mass movements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, which is 1951. Mm -hmm, yeah, and it was kind of like communists and Nazis are the same. All religions are the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm not yeah. like, yeah, I'm not like against like a comparative like framework when it comes to like that type of of historiography, but I also like feel like I don't love that framework at all for obvious reasons. And like, even if it weren't like you know this kind of equivalency that we criticized in the show before, I feel like this type of like uh, parlor room sort of like sociology where it's like this yeah. is like this, you know, I think that's that's that can be interesting and enlightening and can be valuable in some ways. But 
I never really have like been all about like that approach to like history or like I feel like that's like an airport book type of like sociology that I don't like love or social history that I don't love, you know, where it's like, you know, Muhammad and Trotsky are very similar in a way. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah I guess, you know, like um, I, I'm not a huge fan of I, I, I like the parlor game of doing that. But at the same time, I don't like the way that it often gets used, particularly in like more serious like journalistic or academic discourse to like make really sweeping yeah generalizing comparisons yes. about like that end up being kind of like bad guys like are all the same um i mean in a weird way you almost see it with kind of the the more recent era of like dhs and like combating violent extremism kind of like yeah. protocols that mm-hmm. came up kind of during the isis era where it's like this weird i, I you know I, I guess for like you know political reasons they kind of have to like just say like violent extremism is like you know a category of like threat and bad person and like every ideology and like motivation kind of under the sun is like lumped into this like group of people who are just like extremists man so it's in a way it's kind of like uh like but i think more specifically um i don't like how like even just in his Wikipedia article or in the Wikipedia article about the book, The True Believer, there's like constant references to like basically how communism and fascism and Christianity and Islam, but like particularly the Nazis and the Soviets were like, really, if you think about it, like kind of the same. So, I mean, I'd have to read the book to see how how hard he himself is driving home this point. But I feel like a lot of people took away from that or like that type of framework was heavily promoted in the west like during the cold war and up to this day because he says like even though you know they were bitter ideological enemies uh they competed for the same type of angry marginalized people you know this this uh summary says like nazis adolf hitler and ernst Röhm and communist karl radek all boasted of their prowess in converting their rivals so you know it's like okay yeah it's like as i said in our recent sus since episode um i think that there's something interesting about that right but that's like a particular historical context where yes i think it is true and like worthwhile to examine like the nexus between like left-wing social movements and right-wing social movements and like the uh, crossover between them and even the ideological occurrence that are common to the two of them but i think that that has to be like done in a very contextual way when you're comparing like literally like christianity like at its inception you know like the or even early christianity and like contemporary christianity like are so like different you know and Mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like for i'm looking at the pdf of the book now like literally like there's a chapter called like the interchangeability of mass movements that's something that i definitely don't think is true that they're interchangeable right uh when people are ripe for a mass movement they're usually ripe for any effective movement not solely for one with a particular doctrine or program in pre-hitlerian germany it was often a toss-up whether a restless youth would join the communists or the nazis i think there's some truth to that i think you can see that dynamic at play even today very much um you know in terms of left-wing and right-wing uh yeah 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 in the overcrowded extrapolated all a mass movement like anyways go on uh, he says, like, in the overcrowded pale of Tsarist Russia, the simmering Jewish population was ripe for both revolution and Zionism. In the same family, one member would join the revolutionaries and the other the Zionists. 
uh, Dr. Chaim Wiseman uh, quotes a saying of his mother in those days, whatever happened, I shall be well off. If Shmuel, the revolutionary son, is right, we shall all be happy in Russia. If Chaim, the Zionist, is right, we sh- I, then I shall go live in Palestine. <laughs> I do want to, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, yeah. bi- like right-left yeah. binary, uh, <laughs> yeah. just interesting to note there. Um, uh, yeah, outside, well, that's definitely a, a, a fact about, yeah, uh, it's definitely true. And that's very much how, I mean, this is kind of a, a banal observation that many have, have made, uh, and I think it's probably well known to people with uh, some knowledge of this issue. But yeah, certainly like the kind of uh, characterization of like left-wing uh, Jews who often tend to be more sympathetic to the diaspora you know, the sort of snuffing out of Yiddish as a spoken language mm-hmm. uh, as like sort of something that was seen as being weak uh, and the sort yeah. of image of the muscular Jew and early Zionism, like, you know, yes, it's definitely, yes, exactly. yeah, absolutely. Like, but anyway, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that like, I, I think, uh, and this guy's kind of eclectic just by reading a little bit of his bio. Um, you know, he really was, he was kind of, you know, Eric Hoffer, uh, he came from like a working class, I guess, like German American background and, you know, worked in like federal work camps during the Great Depression and in like train yards and then as a longshoreman for a while, hence the moniker and had kind of like a, you know, every man kind of not hoity toity elitist uh, kind of, I think, approach or whatever that got, gained him some popularity. And then he was briefly a UC Berkeley professor but uh but i mean and it sounds like he has like a weird kind of eclectic political philosophy like philosophy like it mentioned i saw it mentioned that he like supported the vietnam war but also had like critiques of it because he thought it would like backfire or something and like lead to communists taking over the world so i don't know like politically (laughs) kind of all over the place but really this idea that all mass movements whether religions or political mass movements are kind of like uh sort of the same core phenomenon throughout history like while there's definitely an interesting vein to tap there in terms of like mass psychology and all these you know the sort of uh instrumentalization or like I don't mean to make it sound evil, but like the weaponization of like belief mm-hmm. and things like that in order to like affect, you know, uh, political or social change in the world and, you know, overthrow the existing social order. Obviously, there could be a lot of interesting things there, but I do feel like it slides a little bit into like a confident, like reductive sort of thing about like all right so let's take like trotsky muhammad and like yeah Hitler, and, or, you and know, it's like always Lenin, like muhammad those people you know who are the extremists yeah, yeah. and who have the like the mass movements right like i you know like where is the discussion of like i don't know like george washington or like what about like the ku klux klan are they in the book like you know okay here see okay see this is like a line that i feel like not (laughs) a little bit yeah right reveals Um, a little bias um he says that mass movements that succeed in causing radical change often succeed in brutal often exceed in brutality the former regime that the mass movement opposed the bolsheviks in russia and the jacobins in france ostensibly formed in reaction to the oppression of their respective monarchies but proved themselves far more vicious and brutal in oppressing their opponents this is a summary but okay 
Hoffer does not take an exclusively negative view of, quote, true believers and the mass movements they begin. He gives examples of how the same forces that give rise to true believer mass movements can be channeled in more positive ways. And this is a quote from the book from page 147. And take a note that, like, who he notes is, like, the positive examples. Uh, he says, there are, of course, rare leaders such as Lincoln, Gandhi, even FDR, Churchill, and Nehru. They do not hesitate to harness man's hungers and fears, to weld a following and make it zealous unto death in service of a holy cause. But unlike a Hitler, a Stalin, or even a Luther and a Calvin, they are not tempted to use the slime of frustrated souls as mortar in the building of a new world. They know that no one can be honorable unless he honors mankind." And I'm like, okay, all right. So Lincoln, Gandhi, FDR, and Churchill are like white hat users of like the true believer energy. But then like all these foreign, you know, whether it's the Jacobins, but like mostly, I mean, he throws, you know, the Nazis in there, obviously, but I feel like, you know, he throws in Muhammad, he throws in Lenin, he throws in Stalin. Yeah. Uh, he does talk about yeah, Paul Revolution. and Christianity, but, That's you know, right. it's never like, you know, like contemporary United States, it seems, uh, you know, again, I'm just like skimming this book after having never actually, yeah, doing a little control F for Palestine, this book, you know, in light of recent events mm. is uh, interesting. It is of interest that the Jews who submitted to exterminate, this is exactly what I was just talking about. It is of interest that the Jews who submitted to extermination, first of all, like the idea that the Jews like submitted to, well, anyway, you know, like there was like the Warsaw Dead of Uprising and things like that. But anyway, yeah, so was. yeah, they in Hitler's Europe, they fought recklessly, you know, they submitted to extermination in Hitler's Europe, but they fought recklessly when transferred to Palestine. And though it is said they fought in Palestine because they had no choice, they had to fight or have their throats cut by the Arabs thanks this is the same thing of like their throats would be slit like you know they're babies why? yeah Wait, like yeah. why why like is there's this idea this is a digression but like why is it for some reason that like in you know no matter what the context is no matter what year whatever what century the, the arabs are always like fighting with scimitars you know like they have guns too <laughs> like if they're you know even if they are gonna like massacre the poor uh you know settler colonists you know then and like terrorist militias they love then, chopping heads off they yeah they're probably that. gonna be using guns too uh why are they, are they like you know just running around with scimitars anyway like in a you know <laughs> orientalist painting uh but so uh anyway so he says uh you know and though it is said that they fought in palestine because they had no choice they had to fight or have their throats cut by the arabs it is still true that their daring and reckless readiness for self-sacrifice sprang not from despair but from their fervent preoccupation with the revival of an ancient land and an ancient people they indeed fought and died for cities yet to be built and gardens yet to be planted that's interesting it's weird that they demolish all those, those uh, villages and uh you know uh force people out of all those already existing towns and cities um, Des deserts yet to bloom yeah 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 oh exactly yeah, uh yeah. so there you go well, just see, there's the on top of the work shit this guy, is. yeah exactly um, you can tell like maybe he's trying to be nuanced for 1951 but like is still landing like with all he's using all the presumptions of you know, yeah this is it like but like I would say that the big bad uh, of this book is definitely communism. This is like a really anti-communist book. Just like reading through it, like yeah, it sounds um, like it is like it's like a mass movement thing. Is uh, I, I don't know. Maybe this is like not a good because uh, I'd have to go back and like read more about it. But I feel like years ago I, I had read about some critiques of like the Frankfurt School's like authoritarian personality. 
and that being kind of like a, a sort of left-wing anti-communist like interpretation of like i forget if it was invoking like trotsky's infamous uh like hitler particles or whatever but mm-hmm. it like tried to establish like a mathematical formula for like how fascist a society is like on like a personal level like i forget i might be kind of off base and it's not that bad uh that authoritarian personality book but because didn't hannah arendt and dorno work on that but i feel like that has been because i remember seeing the authoritarian personality like invoked a lot when trump came around or whenever people like ann applebaum would like talk about putler or something you know they they'd invoke that all the time Mm -hmm. and i feel like this also got invoked uh you know, this book, The True Believer, even that term, everybody kind of understands, that's a very yeah. common term. Everybody kind of vaguely understands what that means. Like, you know, like a like a MAGA chud is a true believer. Like, yeah, a fanatic, and extremist. A fanatic, yeah. exactly. The January 6th people are true believers. Yeah, and right. Of course, like... Whereas Joe Biden are, is not extreme at all. He is like a moderate, balanced person who's like sitting by and letting a genocide happen eagerly. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, this guy does seem to have, at the end of the day, like a very like liberal, a classical liberal like phobia of like mobs and like mass movements, but is like not equally willing to talk about uh, the kind of I don't know uh, whatever parallels may exist and kind of the quote unquote like whatever the mass movement is you know uh, rebelling against or opposing, like the established order. Maybe the book kind of gets into that um to some degree but i'm not i'm not feeling that same critical energy on you know talking about uh you know harry truman or whatever <laughs> like you know whoever was it sounds like you know fdr and churchill like they were it, it has that very kind of slightly naive like american mid-century american optimism of like well we had like our leaders aren't perfect but you know they they weren't bloodthirsty savages who, you know, control mind controlled mobs to go murder people or blah, 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 you know, were somehow better or like not. And I think there's like a subtext in the book. Like you need to read this book to like find out, like to be, you know, made aware of the danger of the mass movement, which in 1951, this is also at like the height of the red scare. So I, I could see this being kind of taken up as kind of a intellectual ammunition to kind of warn about the the lurking menace of the mass movement, which like could be, you know, saying it's communist, but like it has the D it has the same DNA as like the Nazis and yes. as, you know, all these other bad guys that we just fought. So it's really it's, you know, then it can get then it can be deployed in that kind of like left anarchist critique kind of way of like you know the red imperialists are like just as bad as the nazis so that's why we have to like oppose every communist country or something yeah. which is like convenient for like the western powers in that era so to i feel like what that really that... undermines this book sorry keep uh, we should finish no, no, your no, sentence no. yeah okay to me no, what no, really no, undermines ahead. this book is like the fact that it's this you know kind of very sort of like dilettante like uh you know i will like bring in all these examples from like you know uh yeah, the rise of Islam to like early Christianity to like Hitler and communism and like these really are the main things that he talks about um, and then like you know some stuff like having to do with uh, Palestine um, and you know the creation of Israel and things like that but like 
anything in the sort of like uh i mean he talks about the jacobins right he talks about the french revolution and things like that a little bit but it's like never anything that implicates like the united states it's never anything that implicates like you know the seriousness of like the rationalist like western world order you know it's just all like very you know there's another thing as like a capitalist extremist <laughs> you know it's <laughs> just yeah uh these and like sure social movements certainly have similarities but is that you know but i think yeah the the conclusions drawn from that mm, i think he maybe takes it i don't know yeah i i'm somewhat critical of particularly in how it's been like taken and run with um even though this guy Sounds kind of interesting. This like, guy sucks. His opinions suck. It was the rise of a genuine nationalist movement with, that enabled Kemal Ataturk to modernize Turkey almost overnight and commit the Armenian genocide. Uh, okay, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Lame, Zionism yeah. an instrument for the renovation of a backward country and the transformation of shopkeepers and brain workers into farmers, laborers, and soldiers. Had Chiang Kai-shek known how to set in motion a genuine mass movement, or at least sustain the nationalist enthusiasm kindled by the Japanese invasion, he might have been. He might have been acting now as the renovator of China. Since he did not know how, he was easily shoved aside by the masters of the art of religiofication, the art of turning practical purposes into holy causes. It is uh, not difficult to he see. He didn't figure out how to do like brainwashing like Mao did, so that's why he lost. Yeah, uh, it is that's not. That's why we need to do MK Ultra. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is not difficult to see why America and Britain or any Western democracy could not play a direct and leading role in rousing the Asiatic countries from their backwardness and stagnation. The democracies are neither inclined nor perhaps able to kindle a revivalist spirit in Asia's millions. The contribution of the Western democracies to the awakening of the East has been indirect and certainly unintended. They have kindled an enthusiasm of resentment against the West, and it is this anti-Western fervor which is at present rousing the Orient from its stagnation of centuries. Okay. All right. Yeah. No. All right. Yeah. Fuck uh, this guy is the this guy is the original like extremist explainer. Um, it feels like you know, like yeah. if you were around today, would he be like a blue and on? I think this. Like, oh yeah. Type person. I feel like he kind of reminds me a little bit of David Simon, maybe just because they mentioned like Longshoremen, but I feel like he kind of has that like persona of like, like, look, I'm a fucking working class. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Baltimore. But like, then it's yeah, just like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. It's like, are you yeah, kidding me? Like, are you telling me January 6th didn't matter? Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Shut the he fuck would be up. Yeah. Insufferable on Twitter. Uh, yeah. 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 Probably. Um, um, although he apparently spoke with a pronounced Bavarian accent. Yeah, he was like very ethnically German. He had like a very like tragic, like poor upbringing in New York. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. His like mother like fell with him downstairs, and then like he was rendered blind for like several years, and then she died from her injuries, and then he spontaneously recovered his sight when he was fifteen. Like, yeah, he kind of. I mean, inter- I feel like a guy like this definitely wouldn't like just stumble into becoming like a UC Berkeley professor like these days um mm-hmm. different times you know out there in california and no definitely like not 50s or 60s he definitely wouldn't i mean academia is very very different now very very different now so no probably would just kind of wing it back then um, yeah yeah okay. although i guess if you become famous for any reason like you might you know become a professor but nowadays i feel like this guy would kind of be like you know who's sort of similar to him, even though he does have like a doctor and everything, is Jordan Peterson, honestly. Someone who's uh, just like, let me yeah. synthesize a bunch of different things and like, you know, write this kind of like poppy stuff. 
like in a public intellectual sort of way. Yeah, like explaining the symbolism behind like the Bible or, or whatever. You know, this guy's going to explain yeah, like what actually happens in every single mass movement ever. Yeah. Yeah. But then yeah, also the... like reveals this kind of like unconsidered sort of biases and things like that. That I mean, I think that this stuff is valuable to read just to kind of see like how fallacious like a lot of the shit in here. Like, you know, I mean, there's people today who probably would still believe this stuff, but I think some of it you can see like how fallacious like it turned out to be. Um, that's what I said. That's what I mean. Like, I feel like there's wonks at like DHS or whatever that are in like co- combating violent extremism programs yeah. that probably would, in some form, like ride with this kind of framework of like looking as extreme at extremism because it's like implicitly extremism is like anything that like challenges the order and authority of like you know sort of like the imperial state or you know the status quo and so they need to be kind of like amorphous and nimble on their feet to like target various different factions at once like i don't know or and then you can kind of like slot people into like different categories like for example like you know if you're trying to get liberals whipped up against russia it's actually more you know if you just had the mode of like everyone bads like a communist like sure like republicans say that a lot like Chris Christie's always like, he's a KGB agent who's trying to get the old band back together. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, like he's always saying yeah. that, and like Republicans Tru- love Trump's it. a communist. Yeah, like yeah, Trump's a communist, and that's yeah. not a good thing. Uh, uh, yeah, know, as opposed to the is. others. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but but I feel like to get you know, say like a crunchy like granola liberal to you know really get freaked out about Putin, you have to basically paint him as a fascist. Yeah. You know, which is like, I'm not, and I'm not even getting into the whole, like, you know, he's not a communist, like he's, you know, sort of like a, I don't know, authoritarian capitalist or something like that. But like, you need to specifically invoke, even though it's not exactly like a, a good one-to-one, you know, thing, or like, you know, Hamas is ISIS or, you know. Yeah, Hamas like, equals ISIS. Equals yeah. ISIS, even though it's like, well, no, one is like supported by the US. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. True. You know, but but you can just kind of like invoke like they're the bad guy because like people that engage in something like, say, mass movement politics or whatever are all really the same at the end of the day. Like anybody that that uses like force man is like a fascist, you know, or something like that. Like like those those kind of uh, sloppy ways of thinking can be like very effectively kind of like weapon. Like I think they serve a kind of a. utilitarian purpose for kind of this like ambient counterinsurgency of like cybernetically keeping everything kind of down and like in its place and and stuff so depending on like whatever the needs of the day are um but it doesn't necessarily amount to like understanding you know uh accurately uh any of these mass movements and i think just as there are similarities there are also like very valuable to like point distinctions because yeah it's like i think that's why i get so triggered whenever people make like facile like the nazis are the soviets or um i think it was in germany somebody was talking about like the stasi but they said gestapo like just absent-mindedly and i was like uh 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 you yeah. know because you know it's like that's an example of that where i i yeah. get it that though they're both secret police and like they're both german and like they both did oppressive things that were bad that is their set song etc etc but I, I'm sorry, I have to insist, like, not the same, right? Yeah. Like, that these, these are two historically, 
like different, you know, sort of organizations. And yes, even if they use some of the same tactics, Stasi never, you know, committed a genocide. I'm sure that though they did some bad things, but you know, it, it's that kind of thinking, which I think, you know, comes from, yeah, like a well-meaning, like liberal kind of anti-authoritarian place. But I think uh, we would do ourselves a service to like remember historical specificity also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah, this guy sucks. He's like a total imperialist. <laughs> I mean, I think it is interesting to consider like his class background in a way, like and how that like being able to engage with these things like in a sophisticated way like i think this kind of came up before when we were talking about like whitney webb right and like why doesn't she have like a critique of capitalism you know but i think in a way like having a sophisticated critique of capitalism and like studying like uh marxist theory or studying like political theory in general uh and being like conversant with it in uh a new, in a complex way is like a very bourgeois thing you know so like it's something that you need to first of all like have an interest in like doing and then kind of have like the resources to develop that interest right um and i think there's certainly mm-hmm. a class character to being like conversant with like the theory of politics and like political history and social historiography in a, a complex and nuanced way so i think it is 100%. interesting to think like you know okay this is like really dumb and like contains a lot of like you know or he's dumb sounding like i'm, I'm not saying this guy isn't intelligent like he uh, obviously he is right and he like uh, overcame like a lot of hardship to you know become a public intellectual which you know obviously is uh you know so even though i mean dumb in the sense of like you know i find it pernicious and uh you know not a accurate understanding of the world and something that has led to a lot of hell for innocent people but i think that it is uh interesting to consider how like um there is kind of a uh a certain class character to having this type of sophisticated analysis so when well you know there needs to be some kind of structural change if like this is basically like you know if you have someone who's like highly motivated fairly well read um and just like you know kind of going to the library on their own like not you know using the sort of institutional syllabi that we have not having access to those things like then a lot of the time like you know they're just like picking books off the shelf like you know the first book about muhammad the first book about you know the communists like the bolsheviks you know then Mm -hmm. then it's just kind of like this you know uh osmosis and this kind of just like you know morass of stuff without any way to like you know appraise what is uh critical or what's like you know has a certain standard of scholarship you are no matter how intelligent you are you are going to end up with something like this you know like this is the type of like stuff that you'll end up with just from like a general sampling of like what you're going to find like in your public library on these topics on social history and political history and political theory right yeah so you're working with things that you know, or, or like the product of ontops and yeah, like, or even maybe psyops in certain cases in terms of books and stuff. I mean, like that, that might get into a later question of, uh, uh, about how we research, uh, a little later, but learning to kind of weight things, uh, based on doing a kind of, um, like a bias scan or weighting that in your yeah. consideration of whatever you read. Yes. Like, those like kind of, sc- I'm like, no one ever actually like taught me that. Like no one, I never like went to a class. I was like, this is how to think critically, even though nowadays there is something like that. But just like over yeah, I time, I, I think 
either. Unless like Catholic school kind of like beat some kind of rigid thing into me, but I don't even really remember like. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think know. it's a function of like having like a fairly comfortable, like, uh, you know, upper middle class, like upbringing that, you know, and oh, also sure. like studying the humanities, like and things like that, you know, and not feeling like pressure to like study STEM or medicine and things like, you know, Business. not to say that like yeah. there isn't like, uh, you know, uh, a certain capacity to like read critically that comes from studying things, but like, you know, uh, you get my point, like the, like it takes a while, like in like, you know, going into undergrad, like, I probably would have thought, like, a book like this, like, you know, seems, like, scholarly and seems, like, intelligent. Like, I wouldn't have, like, understood that, like, humanities scholarship, like, moves on. Like, you know, things like, like, when I was first, like, studying the yeah. classics, like, studying Greek and Latin, like, I didn't, like, it, you know, it took me a while to, like, get the, like, oh, what someone wrote in the 1920s about ancient Rome, like, there might be something of value in it, you know, there might be some important influential ideas and even insights that, you know, maybe have been uh, discounted, but still might have some some value in them. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily appreciate, like, the difference between, like, you know, some book that, like, some, you know, someone wrote in, like, 1921 and, like, uh, like an incredibly, like, magisterial, like, well-researched piece of scholarship from, like, you know, 1999 or from, like, 2011, you know? Like, it took it's me... It's so weird how college was like that. Like, I feel like I, maybe, you know, maybe it's too much to expect from, like, academics or their, in, their sort of institutions, but... I, I feel like there could have been a better job at like selling what the actual work that academics do beyond just teaching college students of yeah. like what scholarship really is. Like that was sort of never, I don't think that was ever really explained to me ever in college. Like, yeah. and, or maybe it was, it was just like I was young, kind of stupid and like, oh, that's boring. Like in one year out the yeah. other, I didn't appreciate it till much later and like outside of school, like in my own searching around for stuff and i think it intuitively i intuitively developed uh and i think a lot of this is also like reading certain journalists and i have to say also like diving trying to dive into things that are like in that that danger zone of like uh discredited or conspiracy theory type thing you know things yeah. like gary webb's dark alliance but like take somebody finding those books where it's kind of like somebody with a normie background that has like professional standards mm -hmm. like doing kind of like you know like they're writing this book like backwards and in heels like providing meticulous sources because they know they're going to be called out for like every little thing and maybe yeah. have their career destroyed and all these other things so like they're just and and so maybe i think that's where i maybe picked up this kind of thing of like oh shit like i have to be careful with reading sources and like you know you have to build kind of a chain of custody to make a claim which kind of lines up with general liberal arts education of like writing an essay and things like that but i mean but also that the fact that writing essays in high school and college was often so much about like writing new criticism type essays about english works like english yeah, literature or like just coming I have a whole up with issue some with crazy that. take like, and like just yeah, no, like it's really saying like whatever come up with a crazy take and, and just justify it, it. yeah exactly it. that's actually like, and, i oh i have yeah. such a thing uh somebody asked us about the new criticism and like how english departments operate because i was an english major for two years and like there was something so weird like i i got good at writing these kind of hot take essays but then uh, yeah, at some point, something nagged uh, nagged at me about it. And now when I think back on it, I'd like to do a kind of history of 
because that's what it was, right? The new criticism kind of in the 1950s that sort of took like the American humanities by storm. And it was like, you know, all meaning, uh, what was the, the essence of it? Like all meaning is sort of contained into the, in the text itself, uh, like social, the social and, you know, cultural and even psychological context of the author when they wrote it is like not relevant necessarily mm-hmm. because like yeah. the meaning of the work is just in the work itself. Right, the death of the and author. Yeah. And this the is the death like of the it, author. Yeah, like you can just say it means literally anything like their intention could is not possibly relevant. You know, it's just like. Yeah, I find this like I find that to be like maliciously anti art, like anti artist, <laughs> basically to say that, you know, oh, oh, the intention of, you know, it makes me I think, think it's about, honestly uh, a misunderstanding of like what the death of the author is like supposed to be, I think like I think uh-huh. that like that's not I mean, insofar as it has to do with Foucault, I don't think that's what Foucault meant. Like, with the, like, I think that like the I think it was trying to talk about like how works like are socially produced in a way and that like from through a work we can learn things about the society and we can think of works as products of an entire social world and not just like one atomized individual i think that is like really the valuable idea and See, that's, that like, that i agree with but, yeah. that i agree with but i feel like yeah it was taken i don't know if like some of the i forget the the big luminaries of it that were a little bit before Foucault, like in the fifties that mm-hmm. uh, were pushing like the new criticism thing. And maybe without that uh, Foucaultian uh, caveat, you know, because for them it's like, it was, it's like, it wasn't even about the individual. It's like about the individual work in complete isolation or like, it's almost very evangelical. Like you have a one-on-one personal relationship with the text. Like you don't need no mediators or any context. Like you just got to get down on your knees and read brother. You know, like it's, you know what I mean? It's like having like a Mm -hmm. personal direct relationship with Jesus Christ, like, and like nothing else matters. Like it's this weird fucking thing. And I, I feel like somebody who's done writing before that it's bizarre that like you're making choices when you write fiction and your psychology is deeply engaged in whatever you produce. And like, of course there's some kind of explain, like, of course the author, I think you hope it's part of the trust of like reading fiction is that like the author is like taking you on some kind of narrative journey that has some kind of meaning, what even if it's just entertainment, but like mm-hmm. that there's some kind of point to it that the author is like, sort of trying to get across uh, through this work mm-hmm. and or, or even things that they're subconsciously conveying that they're not that too that I think that's very fascinating also like you know and that works for fiction and nonfiction like this book like you know what kind of subconscious things are like when you look at like Lovecraft and it's like full of like extreme racism and shit and it's like okay I feel like that's completely valid and relevant and interesting mm-hmm. to talk about, but it's like, yeah, take this Lovecraft story and like completely block out all kind of like social context and it can mean whatever you want it to, like you can completely redefine it as, and I mean, to some extent, maybe you could say that, uh, oh, well, society does that with works of art where, you know, the the reception of it or the appreciation yeah, of it that that's develops a whole different later thing. on, yeah. it either evolves right. or, it, or it takes on a life that the, the creator never intended, you know, many years later, something like that. But yeah, I think like that there's a slight difference there of, uh, you know, still the artist is trying to 
create something and have like an effect on people and like certainly in fiction uh telling some kind of story and i feel like you know history is a series of stories and it's so incredibly critical to like you know get into interdisciplinary with that shit and you know bring in as much context as possible to try to understand the story better and to like enrich the understanding of it so i just felt i always felt like this is a fun little trick but like that we're doing writing these essays but you're like you're not asking me to actually ascertain uh anything approaching and like i don't want to say objective truth but like the the truth of the author that they're trying to convey and i Um, well i do agree like that you know it's not really possible in most case in many cases it's not possible to truly ascertain what the author intended certainly and we're talking about literary works but i do think that yeah there has to be uh, what i what i my impression of what i think you're describing is that there wasn't even like any attention to an idea of plausibility or even of it mattering i think maybe because of like the perfunctory nature of like some of these assignments that we would get where Mm -hmm. it would just be kind of like yeah like just write this and like you just come up with something no matter what and it wouldn't even need to be like plausible or just say anything about anything except for like you know your own impressions of this text you know and i think that like detaching entirely from like a social context any social context is just not interesting to me you know yeah no Um, and i don't think that's really how doing english classes that's not even really how any academics that i know like write these days or like no one i think like writing scholarship on literature does that uh so that's what i mean that's why it's strange that when you actually get because you know we've uh, we've read quite a lot of more contemporary academic literature for this show over the last couple years and that's actually been kind of like a pleasant surprise to see that oh actually people are doing like interesting work that you know they're honing in on like a very specific thing or a topic or a text and they're doing real research and they're like very rigorous about it and there's actually like quality shit out there but uh may, i don't know maybe it could be better promoted i guess well you know, i feel like again. high school maybe is the place to do this i remember I, I took an english class in in college on like 19th century english literature and i remember very clearly like the moment when like yeah our ta really because our professor for that class would literally just come in and read off a piece of paper and that would be his lecture like staring completely down at it not even taking questions just reading off a piece of paper and our ta like did all the actual teaching and actual discussion mm-hmm. and i remember very clearly the day when she was like the, you know you can read the text through like certain like analytical lenses like you can do a marxist reading and i was like what like you can read like a literary text for, yeah like and he's like yeah this is like when you know you're reading it like with an attention to like you know the marxist like theory of uh, class relations you know and so i was like huh and that literally never occurred to me even though i was like you know not to like toot my own horn or anything but i was definitely like the best like english student you know like i won an award and everything like in my high school like uh you know i won all sorts of awards for my writing in in mm-hmm. high school and it never occurred to me that like you would read a literary text like none of my like you know none of my teachers ever like mentioned this it never occurred yeah, to ne- me that you would read a literary either. text with a an attention to like its social context other than just yeah. like sort of this weird like symbolic fantasia of like this represents this or like coming up with a creative way to understand like the relationships of the characters or something you know or maybe like some kind of like 
uh, you know, background, like Osmos idea of like psycho psychoanalysis or something like that. You know, we never like you almost end up. It's like they almost encourage doing a kind of like a like a vigilant citizen analysis. That's exactly like what not it is. Skeptical, but like a like a positive like vigilant citizen analysis. Yeah. Of like so, like this, like the number of this house and beloved. I remember, I had to write about beloved in high school, and there's a lot of like there was a lot of like low hanging fruit for like English students in that book. I feel like in terms of like very obvious like like there was a house numbered like four two one or something because like her second uh, like or four three one because like her second child had died and it's like whoa and it's like all right i mean it's fine but <laughs> like you yeah. know it's like because stuff like that it's like look at the numbers like you know yeah um what, and i but, think yeah what about the social context it's it's interesting how that does like relate so much to like, yeah, the vigilant citizen thing or kind of like the quote unquote, like parapolitical literature. Cause I was going to say like relevant to the original point about like how, like there's a certain class coding to being able to like say no to texts and how to like, and to think critically and not just read everything, like take everything you read and be like, Oh, this is the truth. You know, like this is like, you know, this person read the text and they understand, you know, especially like uh, academic writing, you know, if like you're, if you read something like that someone's interpretation of something or someone's interpretation of political events, like to be able to say, like to say no, like that skill, mm -hmm. like no one really teaches you that. I don't know if it's possible to teach it. It comes with time. But like, to me, like uh, there's a certain, and this is part of the nuance that I wanted to bring in about like Eric Hoffer, where like, yeah, I think the class background does pertain because this, this is something that I think uh, you're much more likely to have if you like are from a, like a more privileged background. But uh, also this is like in this the sort of domain that we often deal with, like this is a umbrella or like a, you know, a narrative under which like a lot of potential like valuable insights like are dismissed. Like the example that comes to mind to me is like Dave McGowan. Like, do I believe like, uh, you know, everything in like McGowan? Like, do I take like everything that he says like as gospel? Like some people represent our show or like, uh, you know, us that way, but like definitely yeah. not. You know, yeah, I think yeah. that there's a lot of like very interesting like intuitions, very interesting like prov provocations suggested in McGowan and like a lot of very interesting mm -hmm. frameworks. I don't like, you know, but I think that, you know, they, like people will be like oh this isn't like you know written in mla format you know i'm exaggerating but you know yeah, what i mean like you know it doesn't like like it wouldn't pass peer review so uh -huh. therefore like we can just like throw this into the trash and i think that that yeah. is there are like valuable insights there and being able to say no and not just like you know download everything that you read into your brain as like you know, like imprinted on your soul as like the absolute truth and be mm -hmm. able to like synthesize things and like have a critical orientation to them that's important but yeah i think that really comes from reading and a lot some people you know if you're working in certain jobs you don't have time to read because you're working with your hands and exactly. like exactly you know it's just yeah so, um, and I think that, that, yeah, that comes from like a, a lot of reading, you know, and I, McGowan did do a lot of reading and he's definitely intelligent, but like, you know, there is a certain like, um, where, where I think the sort of class coding of it comes in is like a certain vocabulary or way of talking or like that theoretical fluency that I talked about. And also like even minor things like formatting and then like, you know, yeah. things are dismissed under that umbrella. So I think, yeah, in some ways, I think you should be able to be like, okay, Eric Hoffer, like fuck off. Like, you know, but I also think that there's, there's a, there's a complexity there because 
I mean, I'm sure that anyone who like is a regular on SJ knows like you don't want to like dismiss any work like because it's outside of like the sort of uh, quote unquote orthodoxy or the the norm, you know. Like for I think sure, that, yeah, know. like like Gustavus Myers, you know, yeah. who is like I mean. I forget if he like went to college or not, but I guess it worked as a journalist. But like, you know, outside of certainly kind of out in the wilderness a little bit in terms of like being respected and serious, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, all that stuff was honestly like much more like, uh, yeah, it was I think it was less like kind of regimented than uh, than it is now even. But uh, sorry, continue. Um, yeah. 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 No, but I think there I think when you read like the early life bio of somebody like Eric Hoffer, like you you want to hear somebody like that out because like they didn't just come like they weren't kind of born into the ivory tower and maybe they had a different different perspective. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, should be complex and uh, you don't want to automatically assume that he's like based uh, because (laughs) you know like there are pitfalls with anything and like you're right like the the a lot of this uh intellectual shit is like gatekept in american culture like socioeconomically uh in a lot of ways and so i mean uh, like what i'm i guess what i'm more yeah exactly like and i think that that is what should stop you know you'd want to give someone like that with the curiosity and intelligence the resources to like yeah. you know and i don't think it's just be something that brainwashes you know you or like whatever which i think is definitely an effect that academia can have right where it can foreclose your imagination and shut you off to certain like ways of thinking like despite you know the uh, mm-hmm. current vogue for like different ways of knowing i think that uh academia yeah. can definitely uh institutional academia can definitely foreclose like uh certain ways of knowing and that's definitely a danger right even if like you or i had our vision like probably like of uh there's no way not to i mean indoctrination is like a bad word now even though it really just does mean teaching and so there's no real way to avoid like uh having like a implicit like uh beliefs like come through in in an educational system but i think that like you know yeah people like that who like are like uh intelligent are curious and are interesting and like uh, have the energy to like write you know you want to provide like the resources to at least and you know i'm not saying that like everyone should have to like uh you know admit that like the soviet union was better than capitalism you know or any like anything like that yeah um you know uh i'm just saying like you like what you see in that is like shit (laughs) you know like i just like i'd at least want uh i mean i don't know i don't know maybe i do maybe i think that be like you know part of um a uh a uh like a educational training is also like uh you know, a moral training where you should be able to be like supportive of, of the Palestinians and not of, of Zionism. Uh, but, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, like foreclosing uh, people having awful opinions, but I think that they might have fewer awful opinions if uh, we had, uh, or there at least be maybe, I would think, a healthier, uh, a healthier discourse and a less insane one if there were more resources for people to uh learn how to like read critically uh early on you know and to build like you know just to read just to read Mm -hmm. because like you don't have to you have to you don't have to like sit down and be like welcome to like the common core critical thinking class here's how to identify extreme you know like that's the opposite of what i'm talking about but just like the opportunity to fucking read just the opportunity to fucking read is what i mean 
Uh huh. Yeah. Um, no, for sure. For sure. I think we'll we'll probably come back to this uh, yeah. general I mean, subject in a few questions yeah. down. And again, I don't um, have like you know this is uh, not like a program where I have synthesized thoughts. Like what I just said might make it not make any sense, but it was a nice conversation. Yeah. I think uh, it yeah. <laughs> it made enough sense. Um, yeah. Me and a friend went out one night walking in the street. We talked of God and the end of the world. I stuck my head in a fire. The night was cool, it was around the time that fat ladies come out While river rats broke windows and performed unnatural acts We walked halfway across the town and sang in an amphitheater Should we move on to number two? You want to read that? Yeah, sure. Uh, deleted user. Uh, They're still there, comment. by the way. They yeah. checked in. They're <laughs> still. They're still. You know, I guess they're not in the Discord grotto, but they're still, uh, you know, an actor. Oh, interesting. Basically. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, they're, will, they're they will. They will be receiving this. Mm-hmm. Um, so deleted user. Unless asks, it's a different deleted user. Well, yeah, you uh, can't but. really distinguish, but. <laughs> Any thoughts on the uh, 2005 film, The Devil and Daniel Johnston? I remember watching this like way back then. Uh, it seems very SJ with him being a very influential musician, fed acid, and becoming obsessed with the devil in the number nine. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize a number nine connection because that was, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. One of, the nines. Uh, yeah. You had that sort of nines experience we talked about in our episode. I had a little nine. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. I think uh, in our 13 episode, I discussed finding uh, on my yeah it was on my 29th birthday uh yeah finding like a bunch of playing cards like face down on the ground in a uh, koreatown and when i picked them up it was only the nines from the deck mm-hmm. and then something i feel like something else weird happened with nines also around the same time but i forget there was like one other nine thing that like added to like what the fuck 
I don't know. Anyways, but Daniel Johnston, yeah, I also watched that movie kind of back in like the mid 2000s when it came out. And I would say I had like a couple phases of being like really into like daniel johnston you mm-hmm. know i remember i like, feel like he was like, big like especially around the documentary like connor oberst covered uh devil town you know yeah, so, yeah that's, you a, that's a good cover that's a, yeah, I, yeah i like that cover a lot actually yeah it, it really holds up yeah um, and uh, the yeah i mean the song the song itself holds up i mean those lyrics like they speak to our time they really do uh it is true yeah. it is true yeah um no there there's some like kind of very noited tracks like here and there uh with uh daniel johnston and i mean i just want to say off the bat like maybe this will be a little bit of a punt because i think an entire daniel johnson episode might be really good between the documentary and other stuff about his life like definitely in kind of the pantheon of like phil oaks and like other uh tortured musicians that were kind of like tangling with the power with like dark powers mm-hmm. and shit um and also like interfaced with weird music industry type shit uh i think daniel johnston is like a very uh a rich subject you know to get into but yeah i guess i'll just say like i mean i feel like when i watched that movie back you know it was probably my early 20s that you know my my kind of whole worldview about everything was like a little bit different mm-hmm. and i feel i feel like if i i haven't gone back and watched it again but i feel like if i do it, a bunch of stuff's gonna jump out of me like oh my god no like like his whole thing of you know i think taking tons of acid uh when he was a young guy and then obviously like the schizophrenia uh that kind of consumed him eventually and being in kind of sus like austin texas you know in the 1980s and singing a lot of songs about like the devil and like satan and yeah. getting kind of apocalyptic and religious uh, i'm and just reading his, at the same time i'm reading his wikipedia right now and like uh, i like uh he refused to sign a multi-album deal with electric records because metallica was on the label's roster and he was convinced they were satanic and would hurt him also dropping based. his longtime manager yeah exactly based um yeah hawk um uh, yeah extremely on hawk yeah, um, God, I mean, I'm looking through uh, all of it. I haven't listened to him in a long time, but I mean, really a singular, just like unique American artist, I think, um, in terms of the sonic quality of his music. You know, I mean, he was really one of these pioneers of sort of like weird lo-fi music, probably along with like R. Stevie Moore. And, um, and like... He's so, I think he's really interesting to a lot of people because, like, his actual musicianship and singing, um, sort of sucks. <laughs> like, uh-huh. yeah, they're not that was my impression. good, mm-hmm. but he, but, but there's like a core in like his songwriting that is like very, very good. So mm-hmm. it's like this, you know, kind of insanely brilliant songwriter banging out these like basement, crappy basement tape demos of like songs that are you know incredible i mean i think like probably like true level find you in the end is probably the most uh maybe the most n- known by normies but like that's a great song 
and I mean yeah, like a haunted like a like fucking that, haunting yeah it, yeah a super haunting song mm-hmm. um but like also beautiful yeah, yeah the album something like appealing about his voice for you know lots of people with weird voices people like you know like the greatest man ever Bob Dylan you know his voice isn't uh, conventionally uh melodious I guess but uh no you're so, right you're right yeah. I know I mean he's yeah, but it's kind of it's actually um it reminds me of I forget if I had mentioned this but like one of the artists um who i put in like the very early demon forces um i believe i i'm referring to melinda jackson parker yeah melinda jackson parker who was like a congresswoman in liberia but also like a musician and she has all these like old 1940s recordings of like sarcastic sort of variations on like popular songs about like mosquitoes and like like songs about like president tubman but like she's like banging very rhythmically like on the keyboard and singing in this kind of all over the place like very i don't know very like playful and like rough but also like kind of brilliant kind of thing i don't know for some reason she's the closest person like sonically to like daniel johnston um that i could think of but but no i I don't think he necessarily has a bad voice well he's like kind of a I mean, he has kind of like a sloppy style on the uh, his yeah. little Casio keyboard. No, I, I, definitely. Guitar. Like it's you know that's part of like the, you know the sincerity or like the honesty of it is that it's like imperfect, you know. Exactly, uh, but yeah, it's it's very raw, and I feel edges. like the this just the the very like lo-fi sound design is like incredibly influential on people. Mm-hmm. Um, going like you know going into like the nineties and like forward, a lot of people uh, ended up taking up that kind of style um yeah it cast great tone for the painfully alone <laughs> do you remember that maybe that was a little bit too much of a deep cut um Wait, which one cassia tone for the painfully alone oh yeah 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 yeah, right, yeah. yeah. and his uh, his little um album art you know for all of his cassette tapes that are like weird and yip jump music and of course that's what that's what kind of gave him a, a big boost in the early 90s because kurt cobain wore his like hi how are you t-shirt on mtv and like mm-hmm. he really like rizzed up daniel johnston because he was mm-hmm. always doing that like yeah the white hat white hat kurt uh was mm-hmm. always like rizzing up like random ass like bands that he thought like deserved you know more fucking attention by mtv and shit uh though it it didn't really go well for daniel johnston when i think he signed with he signed with electra i think I think um, he refused to because he believed they were satanic, right? Oh, sorry, um, sorry. No, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. Oh, Atlanta. That was right. He yeah. refused Electra because they were uh, Metallica was satanic and then uh, signed with Atlantic Records. Um, but then I think, uh, which, you know, was Achmet Ertegun's label. Mm-hmm. And right. then, uh, yeah, that album Fun came out, which is kind of like his most like produced album but it was a commercial failure and then they dropped him from the label and then he kind of disappeared for many years and i feel like around the time that movie came out he was like a hermit he had been in and out of mental hospitals like he wasn't he didn't seem very like functional but then i think he sort of came back and started doing concerts and stuff and then he died yeah in 2019 but i think he had a final like late career yeah, because of, of the uh, documentary. Yeah, because the documentary, a lot of people found out about him, and I mean, I just remember watching the documentary and being like, "Oh wow, like what a dark 
tragic story like he just developed schizophrenia maybe taking tons of acid it seems like that is what it. happened that he like was given it's interesting yeah he says it fed acid because i think he was like slipped it right that's what they that's what i'm seeing i, I recall from the documentary that like someone um yeah maybe in austin like slipped him acid and he had Dippy a crazy Haynes, trip. The singer of the mm. butthole surfers the, the BS, oh butthole uh, surfers mm. they helped him get his record deal i think uh, or they uh yeah. paul leary from butthole surfers uh produced his atlantic records album hmm but uh, butthole surfers interesting uh, but, uh, uh Haynes denied sales. the allegations uh of this but mm, just like know. the grateful dead and credence huh hmm. but yeah Somebody's it does always seem slipping like somebody acid hmm it does seem like, you know, it was, it had to do with uh, him taking LSD and that was part of the, uh, at least it was the, it intensified his schizophrenia. Of course, you know, it wasn't the glorious psychedelics fault or anything, you know, they can never cause anything bad. It only uh, happened, honestly, it's probably a coincidence that uh, his schizophrenic symptoms emerged after he was taking uh, LSD, but, you know, I'm being facetious. Listen, but, l- yeah, listen to like, this one paragraph yeah. about, this is the most, like, psychogenics, like, musician <laughs> paragraph I could ever read uh, about the butthole surfers. Okay. Uh, in 1981, Haynes and Leary published the magazine Strange V which featured photos of abnormal medical ailments coupled with fictitious, <laughs> humorous explanations for the diseases. After being caught with one of these pictures at work, Haynes left his accounting firm and moved to Southern California. Leary, at the time one semester shy of his degree, dropped out of college and followed Haynes. After a brief period spent selling homemade clothes and linens emblazoned with Lee Harvey Oswald's image, the pair returned to San Antonio (laughs) and launched the band that would eventually become Butthole Surfers. Cool. (laughs) It's like, cool. (laughs) Why Lee Harvey Oswald? This is like, they're giving Discordian vibes. I don't know. Though, I guess they had some good songs, but... Actually, I don't know enough. I, I feel I feel like some real music heads probably know way more about Butthole Surfers. It's interesting than that, we do. like his uh, when he had his manic uh, episode, uh, one of the you know first ones that had him uh, uh, committed to a mental institution. It was mm-hmm. because he was flying in a small plane with his father, oh, yeah. who was in the Air Force, and he, I guess started to believe that he was Casper the Friendly Ghost and he removed the key from the ignition and threw it out of the window of the plane. Yeah. And yeah. then, but his father was able to land the plane safely. But yeah, I'm never getting in a small plane. This is, that's like, if no, there's any one takeaway from never. doing this podcast yeah. for all these years, like it's never, never getting in a small plane ever <laughs> for any reason. Um, Honestly, that, that story is like one of the, that's very disturbing. Like when they recount it in the documentary and it's like legitimately, like i mean that's a level of schizophrenia like it doesn't get i don't know more kind of unpredictable and like scary than that of like taking the key out of the plane and throwing it out of the fucking window yeah uh, like your own son doing that like jesus christ but i forgot that his dad was a former u.s air force pilot hmm, yeah okay. that's something to look into and just being like casper the friendly ghost like and just like like maniacally trying to land this plane while it just like i really ugh. like that song too uh, yeah, that, yeah. did he make that song before or after he did the plane thing i don't know i do not i know. think it was on yip jump music if i recall correctly yeah it is so um, i think that was afterwards he really identified with uh the yeah casper the friendly ghost for some I reason mean, yeah uh, he liked those spooky aesthetics you know the sort of like uh, cozy horror vibes yeah yeah um and uh, yeah also the other thing about him 
that I feel like is an interesting thing because he, he's another one of these music, musicians and you know we've talked about many of them that like would never ever shut the fuck up about the Beatles. Yeah, like, he wanted to be like, John Lennon. Yeah, he definitely. loved the Beatles so much. Mm-hmm. Just like yeah. uh, I don't know, Glenn Fry, just like uh, Elliot Smith, just like so many other people. Like especially these like Gen X, like sad boys that just like absolutely like worship the Beatles. Like they are the greatest thing. And it's funny because I mean, you could kind of see it a little more with Elliot Smith. He's a little bit more uh, traditional singer songwriter. You mm-hmm. know, emotional stuff. But like. It's interesting because like Daniel Johnson's music is like so eclectic and like strange. You do you can kind of see a commonality between maybe like the style of songwriting to some extent and like Lennon McCartney, but it's still it's like not two things you would normally associate as being like, oh, this is totally influenced by like the Beatles. Like, but he like love he's like obsessed with the Beatles. Um mm-hmm. and uh, there's just something about it. I don't know. Like I it, again, I I get it, but what is it about the Beatles that like speaks? I honestly like, don't know. So... I like people. Yeah, I real. I don't get it. I don't understand why like people love the Beatles. I definitely can understand how the Beatles were like incredibly influential, but I mean, with any of these things, it's never just like. I mean, obviously they are like uh, their influence like can't be uh, overstated right like their revered group and everything like but i mean like obviously with any of those things like the innovations like like kind of like we were just talking about you know they don't just uh like you didn't build that they don't just like come out of nowhere you know like there's obviously uh, like influences upon them um you, you, even like leaving that Tabistar. stuff aside you know <laughs> yeah like even leaving that, like you know and so uh like historically speaking like maybe i could see like maybe if i were living in that time like i would have a better sense of like you know uh how or like a revolutionary or whatever the Beatles were, but certainly like, you know, growing like you know, being born at the end of the eighties, like, you know, listening to them now, like I never like, but you know, I do like, ba- like I love Simon and Garfunkel when I was young. Like I was obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel. Like, uh, I have Springsteen, stronger I always loved. emotional. I, I think I have stronger emotional connections to like a handful of Simon and Garfunkel songs than like anything the Beatles have done. Yeah, absolutely. Like the boxer, slaps yeah. i was just listening to that a couple days yeah. ago like that's awesome that is much better than like any beatles song i could like think of you know like oh I am C- a walrus. cecilia like the sound of silence is amazing like the storytelling like whereas like what uh, eleanor rigby is like the beatles like telling a story in a song you know and it's like oh, really really trite and much. stupid yeah, yeah. I think that um, song is literally. Oh wait, no, the tax man is about taxes. Uh, yeah, Eleanor Rigby, Rigby is find, like a, a sad people, lonely people. The best oh, contribution of that song was that uh, Sinead O'Connor used it in um, the in Famine, um, <laughs> sampled it in Famine. That's you know. Um, but oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we we stand Sinead. Um, yeah, R.I.P. And yeah, I, I mean, there's a few Beatles songs that I would consider like bops that like I fuck with and like they're great. I just don't have, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Daniel Johnson was born in 1961, so I feel like he would have been a little, he's just a little bit too young to like remember them being on the Ed Sullivan show, or maybe it's like an early childhood memory of his. He'd be, he would have been like three or four when like the 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 british invasion happened so this is like 
maybe it's a childhood thing specifically of like he i don't know when he encountered the bagels for the first time but i'm sure the documentary uh will explain it also because like my dad who was always playing music when i was like growing up my dad was never he was like slightly too old of a boomer to like really get swept up in the Beatles op, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the Beatles psyop thing. Um, he liked the Rolling Stones because they were more like hardcore. My dad liked like, the Doors. My dad oh, has wow, like okay. my dad's uh, like boomery sauce. band of choice. Yeah, it's sauce, it's sauce. Yeah, yeah. But I never, I never liked them. He would try to like get me into them, but I never liked them. Yeah, he. He like he thought like uh what's his name uh Jim Morrison was like he's like listen to this maniac and it's like all right all right yes I agree my he's dad, a maniac. my dad liked them um, but I remember him saying when I was like a kid so he's like sometimes I listen to Doors I'm like what the fuck is he talking about like, <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> like, yeah. I think we're listening to Riders on the Storm and he's like what the fuck is he I'm yeah. like dad he's talking about like Operation Phoenix being brought back home there's a killer on the road like. <laughs> <laughs> my dad would His just like it when, like, like a when toad he because yell. he was given dmt by mk ultra <laughs> like, my dad thought it was like the most extreme thing like that jim morrison would like yell and scream in the songs you know like he just thought that was like so exciting and cool <laughs> you know? like, um that he would just like scream wow but that obviously for a, like you know a teen in like the 2000s not very impressive to scream um uh, we had screamo so yeah exactly know, we had an entire too, like album screaming, especially uh yeah. you know long island but crawling in uh, yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, uh there you go uh, but I, I get um, it you know i mean um, it's a very effective op but no i i'd like to uh yeah the devil and daniel johnson because he also was like he was satan is real pilled uh extremely so and i mean if you just listen to the song spirit world rising uh, i'll probably put it in this episode it's absolutely like haunting and terrifying when he's like the devil has texas <laughs> what the fuck he also died on 9-11 by the way huh okay yeah um yeah. There you go. but yeah i mean i still want to do sus beetles like one day um we have to well yeah we really we won't have to title it sus beetles because we just can't we can't just call every single episode sus blank however uh <laughs> that's like the working title yeah because i remember watching that movie get back you know like we're just like the beetles like last songwriting session together they all i hated all their personalities they all seemed annoying as hell yoko was my favorite honestly um (laughs) and i mean their songwriting process like was impressive like you know how they were able to come up with like a song in like such a short amount of time just like kind of just like playing individually like on their instruments you know but Mm. other than that i was like fuck like fuck these people like they're annoying (laughs) and like i didn't like like the songs they wrote so I was just like, all right, but sorry for planning on the Beatles. I was just seeing a tweet the other day, like, I don't know who tweeted it, but it was just like, the Beatles are the one thing where like people, you know, are actually right about how crazy they are about them. I was like, no, no, they're not. They're wrong. They're, yeah. No, I don't know if any band really it. deserves like the level of worship that like the Beatles get. Like, like I don't know if anybody like rises to that level of like, oh my God, like it's uh you know, which is not to say that, you know, no band deserves like an exalted status. It's just that like their status is so massive. It is like critical to like the narrative of like Western civilization that like the Beatles are like yeah. the greatest thing that ever existed. And, you know, and if you're not down with that, like you're a fucking hater, like you're, yeah. you're really, uh, there's no space, like, 
you know, you were you were silenced. Um, I, I I almost never hear like anti Beatles opinions being shared like anywhere by yeah. anybody. And it's all the people you expect to be like, you know what? Actually, fuck the Beatles. Like Daniel Johnston is like, I love the Beatles. <laughs> like no, yeah, they're like the you know, even like the most like out there people are just like John and Paul. Like yeah, yeah. like love me do like shut the fuck up <laughs> like i mean i get it but and, and maybe in going through who was it a who had like history, a horrible encounter with the beatles and like hated them wasn't paul robeson like who had that like meeting with the beatles and like hated them um oh i wish uh, i like i wanted to be paul robeson but i don't yeah think so. i think it um been. yeah um, god i don't know i forget who found them super annoying it could have been i don't know i don't know i have to go look that up mm-hmm yeah, but they, you know, and they were promoting like all this like uh, yoga shit, like psychedelics. I mean, I mean, I think they were vessels. I mean, we really have to find out. We have to do a multi-part series <laughs> yeah, about yeah, yeah. why, like, what is up with the Beatles? Like, literally, what's up with the Beatles? Because I think there's some sus aspects, but maybe we'll find that there there's a credence aspect to them as well of being like extremely kind of like maniacally driven and like hardworking and they caught a wave and you know but then of course like we said anything that has power or influence is going to be like paid attention to and perhaps you know engaged with or boxed in or whatever like you know the the power structure of the day have to know what to do with the beatles and, and stuff or like contain it control it whatever and um i don't know if anything all that like tavistock institute shit is actually you know true or maybe it's true i mean also you know there's also the west german connection to the beatles right because mm. they were in hamburg that's mm. where they like made their bones but oh interesting that's also a classic like rocket they were playing at these like rowdy sailor bars mm-hmm. like late at night they were on tons of speed all the time and like you know living it up but like playing constantly i think they were still with pete best and at that point and that's where like john paul and george like really coalesced into like a tight unit so they did put in you know the hours we're not talking about you know a kind of a laurel canyon confection that was like Oh, some like cute boys that sing, and then like the wrecking crew plays all the instruments at Tavistock. Like they really could play, and they could, you know, presumably. I'm gonna assume they wrote their own songs, basically. Yeah. Unless Paul died in 1966. Oh, uh, yeah. Off, Where does but... the Tavistock Beatles thing come from? Good question. I like, feel like, I, like the, who the, made that? Like, or who? You know, I'm not saying they made it up. Like who multiple... discovered and or made that up? I feel like maybe LaRouche back in the day brought this up. <laughs> okay. um, I feel like the author Daniel Estelin, who is like kind of an interesting author who like might be some kind of like Russian intelligence asset of some kind. I think he's like Latvian maybe or oh, he's from one of the former Soviet Baltic states. But like he re- he's written a lot of like conspiracy books, some of which were quoted by Fidel Castro uh, on his <laughs> blog in the 2000s, uh, Reflections by Fidel. And um, I feel like Castro literally quoted a block quote about like Tavistock and like the Beatles being created in like 2007 or something and mm-hmm. like posted it on his blog. It's just like interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, you know, Castro might have been in that shit, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's a thing that's been kind of repeated a lot. I remember like, I think Ed Opperman had people on his show that were 
expounding on the aside from the whole Paul is dead thing, but like we're expanding on the like all these uh, technicians with like white lab coats like in the studio like producing the Beatles, you know, kind of thing. I mean, also as we'll probably touch on in our future installment of a, uh, you know, secret machine music. Mm-hmm. Um this is an this is an era of like rapid evolution and development in like hi-fi recording technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a lot of it literally did come out of kind of like World War II era military development. So like it, it's not as far-fetched maybe, you know, as maybe it seems that there'd be a bunch of like technicians in lab coats like in, in like the swan room with like a bunch of computers and knobs and shit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, I think, yeah, like also I think getting into the Sus Beatles might entail getting a little into sus tavistock and like what actually was it uh i think my general impression is is that it seems like it was a british hub one of the british hubs for like mk ultra style research but also like social kind of social engineering uh a lot of cutting edge like maybe it had a little bit of an sri kind of uh, component to it in terms of like psychology type stuff and there are definitely some sus psychiatrists that like worked there in the mid 60s and this is while the british mod like counterculture scene was like first blowing up and yeah but i'd like to get to i mean really, they're like, unbelievably sus like whether or not the tavistock institute like created the beatles or whatever like uh they're incredibly sus <laughs> Um, there's so much there. I said it before, yeah. but like how lucky that the West like found its own Lenin for wow. all the to. Mm. Mm. Yes, right. Yeah. That's a weird like word game association thing that like doesn't that sum up so like so much about the sixties? Like it could almost be like a corny bumper sticker yeah. of like, you know, yeah, like the people used to worship like <laughs> Lenin, but now the kids are worshiping Lenin. Like you know, and it's like wow. a, a imagine, like you know, whatever. Image, yeah, and the it's legacy like, of imagine. I feel like John Lennon might be the worst one. I don't know. Like, I feel like he might be the worst one. I think maybe um, on a personal level, like yeah. probably the biggest piece of shit, and like in his personal life, yeah. Um, I'd say politically, I mean, he was kind of an edge lord, but like, I mean, he he like he also had some good political. He was very political in the seventies, and mm-hmm. um. He mm-hmm. did get like assassinated by like an MK Ultra, <laughs> like yeah, uh-huh. yes. some fucking weirdo, um, who like gave Kenneth Anger all the bullets before he did it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so like that. There's a little bit of maybe it's just I my incredible him. hatred for Imagine like bleeding into my 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 opinion here. Um, it's almost I mean, like the the CIA planned it to like kill him after because he wrote all these songs like you know like the luck of the Irish and like all these like working class hero. He wrote some very like angry like political songs in the early to mid 70s and like right when he releases his most like annoying lib-brained like let's all just come together they're like all right kill him now <laughs> and then like that's his last song that's his legacy is just like imagine and like imagine no religion and we all just love each other mm-hmm. like it's it's he ended on a cringe note i think um that that's how i feel but if you listen to like the plastic you know ono band like the John and Yoko albums, like I kind of fuck with some of those. Like mm-hmm. they're they're wild. Like talk about screaming. Like mother, 
mother is like oh man like <laughs> he needs to go to therapy or something like yeah. he's, uh but i think that was actually like some kind of weird primal scream therapy that he and yoko were doing and like he incorporated that into his song maybe the the hardest one to love uh i would say but also maybe uh the, I mean, they're all interesting art like i actually like all their solo work in the 70s better than like Beatles, Beatles work basically. Wow, I feel like they. I feel like Ram. I have Ram on vinyl. Like you know, that's a that's a good album. Um, I, I really only know like the Beatles the hits, and I hate them all. <laughs> that's really my only. But I feel like maybe yeah. Um, and I mean, imagine of course, got his like his impish like ooh like little like weird British thing going on uh, in a lot of his records, but they're actually like pretty good. And then John is just like bizarre angry like art rock with like yoko and then george harrison like ran off to an ashram and got like super psyoped and made like harry krishna music but it's like pretty good like harry krishna music i guess as far as it goes i don't know what poor ringo i don't know what he did but uh but yeah yeah one day one day you know Mm -hmm. and daniel johnson as well yeah um we got a few uh we, we got a few on the music list on deck that yeah, gotta, definitely. We have an, a giant like nightstand of episodes uh, coming down the pipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been to
December 30th, 2021, they ask, what are your favorite traditional Irish ballads? Oh, damn. I mean, there's a lot. Well, I guess it depends what's traditional. Um, oh, I mean, I got But my I answer. guess Whiskey in the Jar, uh, Red-Haired Mary, The Patriot Game is a good one. 
Uh, what were you going to say? One shot patty. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and I heard many years ago, or so the legend says, St. Patrick roamed the hills and lands, drive the snakes away. But now we have another saying that's bad news for the crown. His name is One Shot Paddy, and it's Brits that he will hound. Brits are getting worried, they've all gone underground. If One Shot Paddy sees them, they know they're going down. So the next time that you see the Brits with the faces full of fright, watch out for One Shot Paddy, or his friend called him and right. Remember that song? Brits are yeah. getting worried. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's more of an IRA ballad, but uh, yeah, it's same with, so with jolly. Game. That, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love those jolly, uh, you know, come out, you black and tans. Uh, is, a, is a banger for sure. Um, no, but actually, if I'm going to nail it down, I think this is technically an Irish-American uh, folk ballad, but I think it counts in the pantheon. I'm referring to when the breakers go back on full time, uh, which I think was an Irish miners song from uh, like Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I'll put it in, but you know, it's like celebrating uh, like they're either, I don't know. They're not on strike, but there's like a work shutdown. This is like peak gilded age, like sicko silk topper days. And they're like fantasizing about all the things they'll buy uh, when the breakers go back on full time. And it's like they talk about like dressing their children like fairies and like moving away from the roundheads <laughs> and all kinds of other shit like that. Oh, but cool. uh, it's a good there's a there's a really obscure group that I'd found on YouTube called like I think they're called the Irish Balladeers. And they, they had like one or two albums, but like all of the songs that you can find uh, that still like are on YouTube are absolute bangers. And uh, that's one of them. Uh, the Wearing of the Green is another yeah, one yeah, that yeah. I just remembered is definitely a classic. Uh, you know, and I feel like that that fits both that because I wasn't sure like if they meant ballad in the sense of like a song that has a story to it or ballad in the sense of like, you know, like a lighter ballad, you know, waving your lighter. I feel like wearing a green could probably fit both, uh, you know. Uh, That's true. I guess. I guess a lot of the. I guess a lot of the songs I mentioned are like. Uh, I don't. You know, what? What's the, they're like hyped song. They're like hype songs. Yeah. Basically, they're yeah. not Same like with Danny Whiskey Boy. Same with and Red Haired Mary. Yeah. Um, Would those be classified as jigs? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let me see. Whiskey in the jar. Uh, it's. Uh, let's see what. Is there like a genre classification? Probably. I mean, maybe it would be jigs. I don't know. But and the Grateful Dead did a version of Whiskey in the Jar. I don't know that. Well, they they were a jug band. Uh, also, yeah. I want to say the um the I just want to double check and make sure this is a uh, Irish ballad. But I know Bob Dylan did a version of this, but it's called the House Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, yeah, I think that was an Irish ballad. Or maybe the demon, also known as the demon lover. Yeah, this is a good song. I've heard a lot of different versions of this. Um, it's dope, and it's like noided, yeah. and it's like it's yeah, yeah. It's basically it's dark. It's like a lifetime movie. Um, yeah, there's where, another you know, song like that. Um, that's like it's like the uh, it's another sort of like thing that has many different iterations of it. But it's like the three um, the three wishes, you know, the like the the 
it's like a devil knight like comes to a woman's house and like has some three wishes like mm. uh, or three riddles sorry um i don't think it's irish necessarily it slight, slight correction the the house carpenter is uh british from the yeah 1600s. Yeah, yeah i was thinking that is also probably this song that i'm thinking of is also probably british but um riddles wisely expounded is like the title under which it's known yeah uh nice. dating to at least 1450 child ballad yeah definitely uh traditional english song but fuck english songs i mean uh, there's definitely irish gaelic versions known to exist according to wikipedia so uh yeah. probably traditional oh, there too but you know i think you know wearing of the green classic patriot game more contemporary one whiskey in the jar always fun red-haired mary i like a lot i'm not sure how old red-haired mary is it seems old from the content yeah shout out christy moore he was always he's a pretty good dude um irish legend and i guess the entire credence clearwater yeah. revival catalog is essentially irish uh ballads so you know spiritually speaking i guess red-haired mary was composed by uh shan mccarthy 1923 1990 so that's 20th century not really a traditional but you know yeah Okay. Yeah, and of course, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and um, <laughs> every song by Flogging Molly. Um, uh, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, the theme song to Boondock Saints. <laughs> uh, sorry. Sorry. What no. is the, what's the theme song to Boondock Saints? It's just like a very I I forget. It's like very you'd recognize it if you. It's like I'm sure I would. Yeah. Generic um, Irish like punk rock jig kind of thing epic movie it's so it cool. was freaking epic yeah, yeah. it was cool yeah. as hell bold fenian men it's a good one exactly bold uh, fenian men. oh i thought you were calling the protagonists no, uh, were no they fenian are definitely men, bold fenian were, men but i was naming another uh song that came to mind um yeah Some interesting foggy idea. do foggy do's oh, yeah, good foggy you know do. gotta shout out foggy do right Ooh, who is ireland's enemy i hadn't heard that one that's an anti-war song from world war one yeah who indeed? Uh, there's yeah. another song I like that I think is set to the Foggy Dew called Canticle of the Turning, which is mm-hmm. kind of like a like a religious song. I'm, I think the lyrics are probably more contemporary, but the you know the melody is um you know same one that says Foggy Dew. The wind that shakes the barley. Yeah. There's a movie named after that. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. Uh, no, I uh, we we stand we stand the Irish battle. No, yeah, I definitely am. I'm often bopping like traditional. I love folk songs in general, especially like really old folk music. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, there's this one like album of folk songs, not Irish folk songs, but like um, it's called uh, "The Wheel of the Year" by the Armstrong family, um, mm-hmm. and it's just, like you know this like weird family like, <laughs> uh, and they're um. You know, like even their kids sing on some songs. So, like, it's just like a bunch of really weird, like, old folk songs. And, like, one year I just bopped that album, like, so hard. <laughs> like, amazing. Um, amazing. Yeah. I mean, they slap um, sometimes. Um, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Like, The Ghost of John is literally on this album. Like, um, yeah. And this is, uh, they have like a shaker song on there. This is where, you know, Riddles Wisely exp- Expounded is included on uh, here. I think they call it like Lay the Bent or something. Um, but, yeah there's a yeah some John say, corn you know yeah. some say the devil is dead satirical song about the british army huh, cool okay uh the rifles of the ira song disparaging the black and tans and praising the ira um yeah they have a lot of um the battle songs republican yeah, battle sure. songs are dead. yeah yeah um there's a song about the smashing of the van 
the glass uh is it the glass glass smashing? i think it's a manchester smashing of the van maybe there's two versions of the song about about uh about either one but yeah sometimes that about it's a called bombing? the smashing of the van um smashing of the van song trying to think of what the what the title is yeah i think maybe it seems like chumbawamba did a version of it that is titled (laughs) the smashing of the van but i feel Uh, like they're noted political radicals chumbawamba yeah but i feel like it's better known under like another title even though that's what it's about yeah but i can't think i can't recall it right now um yeah smashing of the murder ballads wow Hmm, interesting yeah what put the blood the well below the valley the twang man no <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> who the fuck is the twain the twang man yikes good tracks good tracks ireland yeah um, definitely definitely like the kings of the balladier tradition are our irish forebears so they yeah. know how to talk they certainly do they have the They're gift talkers. of blarney etc the gift of blarney like mm-hmm. even in the colonizers language they yes turn that shit back around on them haha yeah. Come out, you black and tans. <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> Their accent's more fun to listen to, especially when they're railing about pal- like Palestinian justice, uh, which I was just watching this morning. Like the thousands and thousands who stand with Palestine. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, go yeah. off, you Fenian badass. Go yes. off. Like they're the only, they're like the only ones that are like sticking to their. Uh, they're really sticking to the, the wearing of the green, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and I think the wearing of the green resonates in the in the Palestine context too. You know, they're they're hanging men and women for the wearing of the green. You know, and it's you know also the also the the Islamic color as well. So it's definitely happening. Exactly. Um, Well, as you read in one, was it book or something like that? I forget. It was like how the Irish became white or something else, but how like the the struggle between you know the Irish, especially like the diaspora, like becoming white versus remaining green. And Mm. I think they should stay green. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Green's better than white. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I mean, Sinead herself became Muslim. Sinead herself. Yeah. Shahada O'Connor. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. She changed her name to like Shuhada David or something. Oh, she actually changed her name to Shahada, not to Shahada. I was I just joking. Was Sh- Shuhada, yeah, okay, uh, Shuhada. or something like that. Yeah, uh, Shuhada Sadakat. Yeah, that's what she changed her name to. Yeah, so you know, and obviously the uh, the green is a you know definitely we could say like hitter. Maybe he was a leprechaun of sorts, or maybe leprechauns <laughs> were actually hitter. You know, like good gin. No. Uh, uh, the prophet Hitter, he's like kind of like an immortal, like liminal figure. Like, actually, there's a lot of connections made between uh, Hitter and the the Green Man. Uh, you know, famously oh, covered okay. it in Hellier, right? So, <laughs> this sort of like okay. mysterious immortal green figure or gr- green green dressed figure. I think we've talked about him on the on the show before. That's but yeah, familiar. so he's like a he's a prophet, and a you know, it's unclear like if he's like he was originally human at any point or how he sort of has this. I mean, I guess he could just be someone who is still active in the world despite despite being dead having lived at one time because it's a pretty common thing um in general like islamic religious discourse but so uh he's like this mysterious figure who uh, often shows up to guide people and give them spiritual knowledge uh but he's not a jinn he's he's a guy does he ever like promise that there's like a pot of gold nearby and that 
you just have to like, <laughs> no, tie him and then yeah, leprechauns tie probably a ribbon are more around like the tree, Jen. but then you but, come back and the whole forest is has ribbons tied around it. No, <laughs> <laughs> not to my knowledge. But yeah, I mean, I guess leprechauns tend to act. Uh, leprechauns really are more gin like, but they do wear They're green. So explain They're that extremely. Um, if like yeah. if you to- if like you think about like an Irish gin, it's like oh, it's a le- like it's yeah, completely definitely, a definitely. Well, yeah, that's why gin like that's that's why gin theory has uh, so much weight to it is that you know everyone believes in jinn you know it's a universal belief like it's not like any you know there aren't any jinn anywhere in the world you know everybody knows that they're a jinn every culture has their own like you know specific jinn that have their own yeah styles of dress and habits and uh um, yeah relationships with whimsy and trickery etc yeah yeah and i don't think that i mean i don't really know too much about leprechaun folklore that would be a fun episode <laughs> I mean, we were yeah. meaning to do like a Molly Maguire's episode like every St. Patrick's Day for like the last like three years, but yeah, I also kind of want to do a Leprechaun episode now and like really read into like Leprechaun folklore because I have a feeling it might be that good like to get into Irish folklore before doing the Molly Maguire's in, um, in the same way that like you know Puritans didn't really dress like you know with like belt buckles on their heads and things like that. I I feel like Leprechauns probably don't actually like are not ordinarily like in in the folklore considered to look like you know the leprechaun decorations that like yeah yeah, the lucky charms leprechaun i wonder when that happened i wonder when like the the modern image of like the leprechaun coalesced and like i'm sure this is kind of interesting stuff yeah 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 yeah. no no yeah we we got it and there's a whole series of movies uh, oh right yeah the leprechaun we're dealing with evil uh, leprechaun yeah why is leprechaun even wearing like that same kind of belt buckle hat like what's going on with that you know, like, why Why, why do they wear those belt buckle hats? Yeah. Is he What's an orange up? man? What's going on? Yeah. Is it is the green, like, deceptive? Is he actually an orange, you know? I feel the Lucky Charms has an orange glow about him. Kind of like a Keebler elf. I don't know. We'll have to find out. But, yeah. Now, the style yeah. of fashion was commonly worn by Irish immigrants to the United States. Okay, is there some like Thomas Nast racism involved? With, like, I think so. How is this basically an Irish minstrel character? <laughs> In fact, it's like back. The green thing is like back projected. According to Wikipedia, the green thing's back projected. Where like the reason why leprechauns are wearing green now or being green is because uh, Irish. Irish people would commonly wear green. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So they like to easily like categorize the leprechaun. It's wearing all green. Yeah. Mm, okay. Uh oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of Irish stuff to to kind of get into. Um, yeah, definitely. Ah, sure, if the news is true, the store bills the first thing I'll pay. A slop parlor suit and a lounge I will buy, and an organ for Bridgie. Hurry! Me calico shirt I will throw in the dirt. In a silk one moon I caught a shine And the very first chance I'll put Seamus in pants When the breakers go back on full time Our troubles are or Mrs. Murphy But a Dutchman next door tells me straight That they might start up full time on Monday That's why he tells me Teddy he says told him this morning As he was about entering the mine That the coal is quite scarce around Philly So the breakers go back on full time And I 
true. A store bill's the first thing I'll pay. A slop parlor suit and a lounge I will buy. And an organ for Bridgie, hooray! Me calico shirt I will throw in the dirt. In a silk one moon I call a shine. And the very first chance of a shameless infants when the breakers go back on full time. She'll ne'er stick her fist in no wash tub. The Chinaman, he'll have me free. She'll ne'er pick the coal off the slate bank. We'll buy everything ready made. We'll dress up our children like fairies. And we'll build up a house big and fine. And we'll move away from the roundheads when the breakers go back on full time. And ah, uh, sure, if the news is true, a store bill's the first thing I'll pay. A slop parlor suit and a lounge I will buy, and an organ for Bridgie, hooray! The calico shirt I will throw in the dirt. In a silk one more I caught a shine And the very first chance I'll put Seamus in pants When the breakers go back on full time When the breakers go back